I'm Sam. I'm David. And this is Trafe. So welcome back to the show. Uh, it, it's been longer than usual in between episodes, as anyone who subscribes to the show has probably noticed. And I'm very sorry. But I don't think we have to apologize for it. How about this? I apologize, you don't, and we call it 50-50. Okay, that sounds good to me. What a, what a reasonable conclusion we've arrived at, David. <laughs> um, so like David mentioned, it's been, I think, two months since the last show. And for two of those weeks, we were in China. I also just moved. Um, I think you're bearing the lead here that we went to Beijing together, though. No, that's entirely true. So before we get any further in the show, I wanted to express a tremendous amount of gratitude to Ben and all the organizers at Lamoud, to Daniel and Alex for taking care of us, to Ted and Roberta for letting us stay at their place, and to everyone else we met and had conversations with. It was really a special experience. So thank you to everyone who was involved in this and who we got to chat with. Yeah, we were there presenting a, a different version of the workshop that we give about anti-Semitism. And it was a really educational experience for us to be in conversations about this topic in a totally different context. It was also just simply amazing. I'm, I'm incredibly humbled that the work we are doing somehow ended up in the earbuds of someone in China and that this show that we make brought us out there in some way. And, and I'm, I'm just humbled by that. And like, I think there's a lot of credit to everyone who listens and, and shares the show and talks about it. So sorry about the delay, but thank you so much for um, listening and engaging with this show. Yeah, and, and another another thing is that in our personal lives, we've been uh, in, in all of Quebec, is my understanding, is that July 1st is sort of provincial moving day. It is. July 1st happens to be Canada Day in the rest of Canada, but about 20 or 30 years ago, Quebec, which some parts of it have sovereignist aspirations, decided to make all the leases start and end on July 1st, the same day as Canada Day. So we get to run around and move on that day. It also happened to be, I think, a million degrees for about a week <laughs> around July 1st. So moving was very, very, very difficult. So yeah, between the two of us arranging our moves, this trip to Beijing, and also, to be honest, a lot of challenges in arranging the Palestine episode that we've been trying to get together over the last two months extended uh, the usual deadlines we have. But dear listeners, I will give you Sam's guarantee that we will have an episode out once a month for the next couple months. What is Sam's guarantee? If we do not put an episode out every month for the next couple of months, David. That's two months? People can send me an email and I will reward them in some way. All right. Well, Sam's guarantee. Take him up on it. <laughs> um, so while we've been working on this episode about what's happening in Palestine, we've also been working on a bunch of other episodes that we've been trying to wait to release. But since it's been taking us quite a while... We thought we'd share a series of conversations we had with people involved in new leftist Jewish media projects. Um, but before we get to that, Sam, I know that you wanted to bring some sort of special segment to the show today. David, I'm very glad that you mentioned the existence of my new segment, Sam's Sports Segment. It is an improvement on Sam's Sports Corner. It's which... an improvement on Sam's Sports Corner, which probably sounds better, but I like the triple S alliteration. Uh, we should tell, because I don't think this ever made it into the show. Yeah, for you truthers out there, David edits the sports segments out of the podcast. Well, it's not just me. It just usually doesn't work. This is for a... We'll have to teach the controversy. <laughs> um, so what do you have for us today? Today was the final of the World Cup that was held in Russia. So wait, who is playing against Russia? Not how the World Cup works, David. It's hosted in a country, and then 32 teams compete. And then the last two teams that are left, in this case, France on the one hand, and Croatia on the other hand, played each oh, other. So that's why on my bike ride here, there are numerous people waving the French flag from their cars. This is exactly what Sam's sports segment is about. I'm here to tell you that all nationalism is terrible. You don't say. But... All I wanted for in this World Cup is for France not to win because French nationalism in Quebec is fraught and aggravating, and I just didn't want them to win. So is the main difference between Sam Sports Segment and Sam Sports Corner that the segment is you mostly ranting about sports? I was actually thinking about Sam Sports Soliloquy, but <laughs> we'll stick with Segment for the time being. Anyways, the French beat the Croatians for 2 I guess the thing I'm trying to say is people honking their horns, driving around with the blue, red, and white flag in Quebec is incredibly aggravating to me. So that's been uh, Sam's sports segment for We'll see if this makes the cut. <laughs> but uh, over the past two months, there have been a lot of political developments that have been pretty devastating. Tough to even just read about. Yeah. 
we both for the show and just in general keep up on the news pretty consistently. And for the last month or two, I've just been having the experience of being totally emotionally overwhelmed, you know, just catching up on the news feed in, in, in a given day. Yeah. And something that we usually try to do for the show is we write down all the things that we want to talk about on this uh, Google document. And then when we have the show, we can draw from things, jogs our brain, you know, the things that we got angry about last week. David, you're giving away the secret. Someone <laughs> could hack into it. But um, at this point, that list is so long. Yeah. It's beyond anything. Like, usually it'll be four or five points in, you know, every month or two. It's so long that we could never hope to get through it all in the next, like, 10 shows. David, so with all the things on this list, is there anything that you want to draw people's attention to? or Well, t- to be honest, no, because I feel like all this stuff is so saturated in the media. Like, it's one of the first times, I think, in a long time where all these things that are so severe about the ways that people are experiencing oppression in our current moment are actually in the mainstream media landscape to a degree that is overwhelming, but at least it's there. So I don't think we'd be breaking any new ground by talking about any of these things unless it's in depth. Speaking of going in depth, on this month's episode, we took a deep dive, as they say, into new leftist Jewish media entities, I guess. I mean, that's a huge left turn. I Listen, I was there was a segue. I jumped on it. <laughs> okay. So when we started the show, a lot of it was focused on media criticism. You know, we'd be reading through Jewish publications and pretty much just criticizing what was going on in these publications and, and the contents of these articles and how it was written and... Yeah, for Trafe heads, go back to episodes one through six or seven, I think. Yeah. And... During this period of time, it didn't really feel like there was any other Jewish media that had a similar viewpoint politically to where we were coming from. But in the last year, as there's been this big increase in the Jewish left, we're now seeing that reflected in media projects as well. And to help us explore this new landscape, we interviewed two different editors of two American-based publications. The first is Protocols, which is a quarterly online magazine. And we chatted with Ben Ratzkoff, who's the editor-in-chief. We also got a chance to talk with the recently hired executive editor of Jewish Currents, Jacob Plitman. And there were some big themes that were exposed around religion and identity and, and the left that came up in different ways in both of those interviews. And David, I think they, these two interviews actually really paired well together. Yeah, I think so too. But uh, without further ado, here's your episode of Trafe for the 12th of Av 5778. I'm Ben Ratzkoff. I'm a writer based in Los Angeles, a doctoral student in comparative literature at UCLA, and the founder and editor-in-chief of Protocols Magazine. And uh, welcome to trafepodcast.com. Thank you so much for having me. We're not on a website right now. <laughs> but Ben, thanks for taking the time to chat with us. It's an honor to be on the on the cast. <laughs> so at risk of delving into a whole other conversation about how to abbreviate the term podcast, we have <laughs> you on the show to talk about this online magazine. Is that the right terminology to use? Yeah, I, I guess. I know. I just I was thinking I just said Protocols Magazine, which I've never really said before. I just usually say Protocols. It's really an online journal, I guess, is probably the most accurate descriptor. Can you talk a little bit about what Protocols the online journal is? Yeah, definitely. Protocols is really a space for Jewish writers and artists to come together and think creatively and provocatively about many of the pressing political issues that we as Jews are faced with today. And so in that sense, it's definitely a cultural space. It's obviously interested in writing and art, but all of the kind of creative work that we do, we hope is both informed by and is informing political conversations that are happening amongst Jews. So, I mean, there's, as you know, listeners to the show are probably at least somewhat familiar with, there's a whole landscape of uh, Jewish publications and, and Jewish media projects. And so, so what is it about protocols that makes it different? Or why could these pieces not find their way into other media projects? 
Yeah, so I think probably the best way to answer that question is kind of to just like talk about where protocols came from and the kind of void that we were trying to fill. And it really came about organically, I would say around a year and a half, almost two years ago, during the lead up to the 2016 presidential election. And people in my networks were just having a lot of conversations about not seeing ourselves really represented in Jewish media in particular, but then broadly just not seeing ourselves represented in kind of Jewish institutions and the way that Jewish institutions and Jewish media, primarily in the United States, were just really not representing our interests politically amidst the sort of rise of white nationalism globally and a sort of renewed public anti-Semitic discourse. There were many people, many Jews, Jewish writers and artists who had been involved in progressive or leftist politics for a long time. And it was that kind of intersection that we were failing to really see in a lot of Jewish institutions and Jewish media. There was not really a kind of home, at least in the American Jewish landscape, for Jewish artists to engage with politics. A lot of Jewish art gets kind of pigeonholed into a kind of Judaica category or is itself sort of disengaged from politics. I mean, I don't really believe that that's ever true. What that really only means, I think, is that it's engaged with kind of the normative politics. Mm. So for Jewish artists that were engaged with a leftist or progressive kind of politics, we really wanted to create space for that kind of artistic work to happen. We, um, many of us were involved directly or peripherally with a lot of the grassroots mobilization that had happened amongst Jewish people over the past three years, whether that's in groups like If Not Now or JVP or organizations like JFRAGE and have, have either been founded like If Not Now or experienced a kind of exciting boost in the past three years, we wanted to really see writers and artists who were engaging with the politics that these mobilizations of Jews were enacting. And we also wanted to engage writers and artists in a conversation that could inform political organizing. So that's kind of where it came from. That's sort of the void that we felt. It's not to say that there weren't and aren't publications that are similarly aligned, but in terms of creating a slowly cooked, highly curated journal around a specific kind of political conversation is something um, that I at least did not see. And in terms of that focus of Jewish leftist writers and artists having a space to engage with ideas and engage with their art, are, are there projects in the past that you're, you sort of look to or, or feel a connection with? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I guess I first want to just add that I'm weary of just pigeonholing, and I did this myself, like I'm not, uh, this isn't a criticism, but it's, but I'm weary of pigeonholing protocols like into, I guess, a leftist or progressive label because both of those things carry some baggage that we're actually trying to push against in terms of the way we engage with Jewishness. So once we can kind of say, if you're in this space of protocols, you're interested in these shared goals of dismantling heteropatriarchy, ending white supremacy, these kinds of things that are on the political agenda that Protocols lays out and Protocols engages with, then we want to have sort of a much more diverse conversation than can just be bifurcated, I guess, along a binary of right and left, if that makes sense. I guess I just want to clarify this. Maybe you could speak to some of the baggage you were referring to, but if you take away the label left and right, that's fine. But most of the ideas that you just listed would fall under a broader leftist framework, would it not? Absolutely. And I'm not shying away from that at all. It's 100% a leftist space. I guess I'm just nervous because within leftist spaces, let's say, right, it, socialist politics can be hegemonic. And, you know, you don't have to be a card-carrying socialist to be engaged with protocols. It, just to give in one another example, like, and this is maybe even more to the core of Protocols' particular voice is, I guess, the status of quote-unquote religion on the left and the way in which religion as a category is even thought of, the way that Judaism is put into that category, the way in which spirituality is dealt with, and also the Jewish, what might be called the Jewish religious tradition is engaged with. There are certain regulatory ways that those things are confronted in the left that deal with secular politics, universalist politics, 
And oftentimes the relationship between the left and religious communities or religion itself is a colonial one, is basically one that mirrors, right, this kind of secular, modern, Western perspective in opposition to a kind of backwards and savage, irrational religious perspective. So we understand that discourse as part and parcel of imperialist history, the ways in which Jews were actually oppressed in Europe when the burden of secularization came and what happened to Jewish life. Um, and this is not, of course, this is not at all to say that there are not gain. I mean, I myself am a queer man, like we're not throwing out the many gains that we have made as queer Jews, as Jewish women, um, as trans Jews, as Jews of color by engaging with the Western world. However, many of us, including myself and even my queerness, right, doesn't really feel at home in a lot of the secular language of the left. A lot of my queerness is informed by my history in Jewish religious spaces and Orthodox Jewish spaces. I'm very interested in the homoerotics of those spaces. I mean, this is just a personal example of one of the ways in which I am sometimes alienated by the kind of secularism that does exist oftentimes on the socialist left. And so protocols is really a space that wants to resist the kind of secularist agenda that is hegemonic on the left. I mean, it's, inter- it's interesting to hear that in, in our context here in Quebec, um, we have a context where the state has very overtly taken up the mantle of secularism as a state policy in a way that, that can only be understood as white supremacists, very anti-Islam specifically. And, and me and Sam, are, we're both more oriented toward anarchist politics. And uh, in Montreal, every year, there's a big anarchist book fair. And this past year, there were several workshops that were dealing with religion and, and sort of what you're talking about is a, sort of sort of interrogating that context. Um, and so it's interesting to hear that that's a big part of your motivation for framing this in that way, too. Yeah. And that's like, that's really awesome to hear, too. I mean, listen, I think a lot of this stuff is changing precisely because we are having these kinds of conversations, right? I don't want to, I'm not trying to pigeonhole the left either. And it's really, I think, exciting to hear that those kinds of conversations are happening in the anarchist community there. I also think, I mean, you guys are in Quebec. I spent a lot of time, I lived in France, and I, a lot of my research is, is connected to France. And, you know, I think that in the French context, and then its deviations in, in Quebec with laïcité, it's in that context that you really can see clearly, right, how secularism comes in service of the state's racism and religion kind of serves as this racialized category, right? Some kind of backwards other, nowadays directed against, as you mentioned, primarily Arab Muslims. But I think in the United States, it's much more difficult because there's supposedly, right, the state stays out of, I mean, obviously, it's a post-Christian nation, right? I mean, it's obviously determined by Christianity. But the party line is that the United States, and this, you know, right, this was Marx's thesis in, on the Jewish question in Zergudenfrage, that religion in the United States was removed from the political realm, right? And I do think that that is the dominant assumption, right, is that in, in America, you have kind of the supermarket mentality where, you know, everyone has their religion, their preferred thing, and you can go in, you can convert, you can switch to this one, you could switch to that one. <laughs> um, and so religion is just kind of thought of as this kind of spiritual commodity, right? And so if you're a leftist, you don't want to be spending your money on that spiritual commodity, which can only mystify how to achieve liberation. And so... That's really interesting to hear in Quebec, because even when I think in France, sorry if I'm like rambling a little bit now, but even when I think in France, you have people who are pointing this out, but they're so vilified for suggesting that laïcité, that state secularism could possibly be racist, because the whole pretension, right, is that it's universalist. Like, I recently reviewed a book by a friend and activist in France, Uria Boutelja, who is a French-Algerian woman who kind of wrote a book about some of these problems, and she was totally vilified in the French press by the left, by the left. Oh, well, Sam, I mean, Sammy, you were just reading that book, right? I was just reading that book. I've been thinking of ways to try to reach out because I think that was a very interesting piece about Jews written by a non-Jewish person that I thought addressed a lot of the questions and themes that we've been talking about on the show. And it isn't something that I see very often. Yeah. And I think that, um, I mean, the one of the reasons that I wanted to review the book is really because I thought that it had so much 
to teach us, so much to challenge us, so much for us to talk back to and critique as well. I really just wanted to have it out there more in the world because in France, I mean, it's really unfortunate because what happened, you know, that people who are sort of associated with the decolonial left there, which is sort of her camp, kind of just had to go on an all-out defensive against what was this leftist reaction that basically was calling her a neo-Nazi and a homophobe and a racist anti-racist and all of these things that they could never actually have a rich conversation about the book itself. They were just defending it and defending Uria from accusations of anti-Semitism and all these things that they could never really struggle with the ideas and critique the book. I mean, the book's not perfect, you know, and, and there's actually also a, a review that Naomi Dunn wrote, a really great review in the, the new issue of Jewish Currents about the book, too. Yes, I knew that they were they were doing one as well. And I promise we'll get back to protocols <laughs> very shortly. But I, I'm just curious, like, how then you feel about that history of very explicitly secular leftist Jewish organizing, radical Jewish organizing in America? Like how, how, you know, like how that looks retroactively given this context you're struggling with right now? That's a really great question. I mean, I, I mean, listen, I'm, I'm a cultural historian and a cultural critic in a lot of my doctoral work. And a lot of my work focuses precisely on those periods of American Jewish radicalism following the mass immigration of, of Russian migrants from the Russian empire. And I don't know, I'm, I'm struggling to answer this because I think that it makes perfect sense. Listen, like the rise of the secular in the 19th century, it would be insane to think that Jews would be somehow insulated from that. And the rise of a particular kind of like post-Christian secular logic on the left, just as a historian, it makes sense to me. And that doesn't mean I sign off on it or anything, but it's just the way in which the Jewish encounter with Marxism happened, number one, on the one hand, on the other hand, it's the sort of the Jewish encounter with the Enlightenment. And that would take us out of the kind of radical conversation. I mean, it, it's always a negotiation, right? I mean, even if you look at the Yiddish writing, if you look at someone like mm. Peretz, who is deeply engaged with leftist politics and is writing in such a rich way about traditional Jewish life, in Ashkenaz, it's much more complicated than I guess the way we look back at it. I mean, then you do have, you know, your explicit secularists. And with those people, um, you know, I, I would take, I would take issue. But I do take your point, And I will admit, that's why it's hard for me to align myself totally with a kind of, you know, radical genealogy. I think that there's a lot of that going on nowadays. Young progressive Jews are like in search of a usable past. And they want there to be this kind of like Jewish radical tradition or something that they can identify with or ground them in. And that's a whole like another interesting conversation about why that is or like why that would be necessary. But I definitely am in between those things. And and I think that that's okay. Like, I think that that's the state of like what liberation is going to look like. You know, I don't think that liberation is going to be like one long chain of socialist or Marxist coming to consciousness. I do think it's going to be a much more multidirectional and like pastiche and bricolage of like all different things that we find compelling and useful to us. Because at the other hand, I also identify in so many ways with people that the radicals today would probably consider totally reactionary and conservative. When I think of Haredi groups in the 1920s in Mandate Palestine, you know, some of the things that I identify with so strongly are the ways in which Hasidic Rebbe's, whether it was the Imre Emes or the Karlina Rebbe, who wrote so beautifully in letters and diaries about, about living with their non-Jewish Arab neighbors, about coexistence in the land, and about resisting the kind of secularism of the Zionists, right? I mean, that was, it was all related. The colonization of the land and the secular ideology were really connected. And so while I identify with like so much that exists in sort of Marxist-inspired or Marxist-leaning movements, I am alienated from other parts and identify with parts of communities that Marxists would probably find totally reactionary. So I don't know. I think to answer your question, I I take some and I leave some, you know, in terms of how I deal with the past. Ben, to bring this back to protocols, 
you talked a little bit about the political climate that the online journal emerged out of. I'm wondering if it's fair to say that a lot of the discussions and ideas kind of happened around you in L.A.? The truth is the journal really didn't emerge from a local kind of conversation. And I think that that's something that's probably one of the journal's strengths. So my deputy editor is based in New York. The art editor at the time was based in Miami when we first started working together. And we really had contributors in our first issue and in our second issue from all over the world. Um, the West Coast is often slighted in terms of like progressive Jewish culture, so to speak. Like I just think that in New York, there's such a long history and such like an entrenched institutional culture of Jewish leftism. So I do think that it is important that like I'm here and I'm obviously, you know, JVP is based in NorCal and they're a huge voice, but it is something that makes our journal open and aware of whole kinds of networks of people that are, are maybe not seen. I'm curious what the average like age is of this crew of people who, you know, aren't seeing themselves in a politics represented. We were definitely targeting younger Jews. I mean, people who are in their 20s and 30s for sure. I mean, we definitely are all of us involved sort of somewhere in that age range of 20s and 30s and really focused on a kind of younger generation of Jewish politics, but not at all like disengaged from older generations and their kind of involvement and wisdom and guidance and active participation. I mean, it's a very elusive demographic to the institutional Jewish world. I know, right? <laughs> that's the thing. That's You're right. I mean, that's, I guess, the point. So I don't think I can let you go without a quick discussion about the name of the publication. <laughs> it's clearly a nod to the protocols of the elders of Zion. What are you trying to do with that name? So first, I guess I, I want to just make clear that we're not trying to like make any real political change with the name. There is thought behind it. There's absolutely thought behind it. But it's also irreverent and intentionally provocative. In that, you have an ally with the Trafe podcast. <laughs> right, exactly. No, exactly. Um, it was interesting, you know, the way that people responded to it. And I really do think that there was sometimes, not always, but there was sometimes a sort of generational divide that I think just people who weren't familiar with that kind of primarily like internet-based irony were kind of jarred by it. But so I would say there were like two thoughts behind the name one was basically Hannah Arendt, she, she wrote once that if you're attacked as a Jew, you need to defend yourself as a Jew, not by saying, no, I'm, I'm a human just like you. I'm a person just like you. You know, that kind of politics, that kind of cultural politics was very interesting to us and different from a lot of the ways in which other people are responding to anti-Semitism, right? And we wanted to say, listen, this is not going anywhere, right? It's still being sold in bookstores, this like famous anti-Semitic signifier, basically, Protocols of the Elders of Zion, which imagines that Jews are in some abstract space sitting together and planning global domination. And we were here creating a journal where Jews were coming together, discussing and creating different kinds of liberation for Jews and for everyone. And so we kind of just wanted to take the script from them, right, and sort of just trouble the, the entire semiotic field of the Protocols of the Elders of Zion by enacting this reversal and showing a space where Jews are coming together to discuss global politics, but towards an end of liberation. For folks who, who are listening who haven't had a chance to check out your website, it's prtcls.com, I believe. That's right. Could you give people a sense of what this current issue is about, some of the themes that are underpinning it, and what people could expect? So issue number two of Protocols is focused on violence. It includes a wide range of um, works, including installation, memoir, video performance, essays, some music as well. It really felt like violence as a topic needed to be addressed. I mean, how Jews were really implicated in violence, both as victims, as perpetrators, and as something in between, kind of complicating the way in which we were thinking about violence. And so I think a perfect example is we have a memoir 
by Tanera Kalem called Perfectly Packaged about her experience in Gadna, sort of like mock IDF training. And sort of one of the things that she discusses and uncovers in her piece is kind of the counterintuitive absence of violence, the way in which this whole experience sort of kept violence carefully out of the frame. So we felt like it was really important, especially now as you have this rise in public anti-Semitism at the same time as you have Jews as well implicated as perpetrators really in fascist violence, white supremacist violence, and in anti-Semitic violence globally. Well, Ben, I can't wait to keep reading Protocols as it keeps coming out. Um, And I wish you best of luck with the rest of the project. Thanks for taking the time to chat with us about it. Absolutely. Thank you guys so much. David and everyone who so wisely listens to Trafe podcast. This is Rabbi Ariana Katz, and I'm calling to share the news about a new radical synagogue blooming in Baltimore, Maryland on Piscataway land. Hineinu, the Baltimore Justice Steeple. We're gearing up for a high holy day season that is open to everyone. Tickets are pay what you can. No one's turned away for lack of funds. We'll be singing loud, offering powerful poetry, but we can't do it without your help. Go to bit.ly slash launch Hinenu, that's H-I-N-E-N-U, and help us get to our $15,000 fundraising goal before the high holiday season comes. Your funds will help support inclusive services, are continuing to hold programming that is exclusively in physically accessible spaces, and it'll help us make more music, hire yours truly, and dig into the work of making joyful, hardworking, and solidarity building Jewish community in Baltimore. You can learn more about us on Facebook or at our website, hinenubaltimore.org. Hi, I'm Jacob Flitman, the executive editor of Jewish Currents. Uh, long time, first time. Very excited <laughs> to be on Trafe. We are both very excited to have you. Yeah. <laughs> um, so we have you on for multiple reasons. I think the most obvious of which is uh, the new issue of Jewish Currents, spring 2018, or I think it's 686. Is that correct? Yeah. Well, that's the, the number of issues since the beginning. Mm-hmm. That's yep. And so for people who've never heard of Jewish Currents, can you maybe give people a bit of a flavor for what Jewish Currents has been? Yeah, sure. I mean, it's a pretty amazing story in a way. Jewish Currents was founded in 1946, and it was founded under a different name, but the institution was founded as an English language paper of the Communist Party here in New York. And so it was very much of a, a whole milieu of communist newspapers, of which there were many just in New York City, but obviously even more across North America. Um, and for the first few years, about the first 10, that's what it was. It was, uh, it was the voice of the party for Jews, written by Jews, you know, especially these men who ran the publication and saw it as a central organ of their organizing work. Uh, I don't know how shameless this is. We don't you know, make money off our archives. But if people are interested in that sort of older history, we've been lucky enough to digitize not everything, but I think the majority um, of those articles going all the way back to 46. And if you go back, you can see these almost eerie echoes of some of the themes we're exploring uh, when we write the magazine today. I mean, you've got articles from the early 50s about organizing against gentrification in Brooklyn. There's an article by W.E.B. Du Bois, who wrote for Jewish Currents at the behest of the editors, who they hoped would urge the Jewish community to be more pro-racial justice. And it's both inspiring because it, it feels very much, you know, that what we're trying to do in building, you know, a left diasporic Jewish publication, it feels like a part of a very long tradition. And it's also daunting because, you know, if only things had changed more, right, maybe the conversations would be different. Uh, it's eerie to read a piece that feels like you could have written it uh, and just changed maybe the neighborhood where the organizers are living. Mm-hmm. Um, so 
that was the sort of initial phase in 56. I don't know how exhaustive everybody wants to hear this, uh, you know, a sort of chronology, but in 56, there's a famous speech by Khrushchev that essentially it sparked a great cracking in the, especially the Jewish community and elements of the Communist Party, because it acknowledged in some sense and reacted to some of the violence that the Stalinist regime had committed against Jews. In 56, there's actually, this article is saved in the end. There's this great breaking of uh, what was called Jewish life, then became Jewish currents in that year as it stepped away from the Communist Party. Enormous loss of subscribers, enormous tumult in the left Jewish community. I mean, the editor, Morris Shappies at that time, had even been jailed during the Red Scare. You know, these were really committed, perhaps overly serious people who were running this project. And so the idea that they would have broken from those things was a, it was a, it's a trauma that some of the oldest members of our board, you know, can still remember, right? It was a really formative political experience for them. And from there, the magazine became so many different things over a, you know, a very long time from covering things in the community to serving in many ways as a, a national newsletter, but it, it was a community paper, less a paper of a party, more a paper of a community. So fast forward and just I think it's a year and a half ago now, uh, we were lucky enough to receive some funding that's allowing the magazine to grab this moment of the resurgent left you know, in the United States and to try to bring all that history to uh, you know, a political moment that is all too resonant of many of the crises of the last 70 years. Scarily resonant, one might say. So in many ways, what you're seeing, if you're, if you're holding you know, the magazine in your hand, is this attempt to bring all that past into the present. And that's meant a, both a, an aesthetic change. I mean, it is a redesigned magazine. Our site is new, et cetera. But really, it's, it's also a generational change because you know, I'm, I'm on staff, but I'm one of 11 millennials who've been brought onto the staff or to the board and who the sort of legacy members of the board, the veterans of the board, have really given an immense amount of responsibility and agency in shaping where this is going to go. So there really is a great turning in this project, a, a sort of handing over, but one that we're trying very hard to respect the sort of intergenerational uh, nature and, and wisdom, frankly, of these people that have been doing this for much longer than any of us have been alive. Yeah, well, I mean, for a 70-year history, that was pretty succinct. Um, <laughs> yeah, well done. But... Uh, you alluded to the kind of shift in politics in the last two years or three years. Besides looking back and trying to learn from what our elders went through and or what some of our elders went through, how do you see the work of Jewish Currents relating to the left right now? I see. Currents in its forms uh, and in its topics is very broad. I mean, we, there's fiction, there's reporting. It's like all this different stuff. I think what would apply to the whole thing is the political moment that we're reacting to. So maybe I'll talk a little bit about about how we see that. It's actually, I, I wrote a piece sort of on the same topic because it was a product of all these conversations. You know, what what is it actually that the magazine could offer for this moment where people are feeling so much fear and anger and despair also? I think a lot of us are feeling that. In many ways, I think that the magazine is reacting both to the anger and despair over the situation in Israel-Palestine. Many of us come from a generation of people that grew up being taught certain things about Israel that turn out not to be true. And that story is an old one that's been told on Trafe a bunch of times, the sort of shaking of the messianic understanding of, of Zionism. On the other side, I think what Trump has done for a lot of Americans, and frankly, people worldwide, is put a little bit of that same fear into our understanding of our relationship to this place. Suddenly, there's similar trembling kind of in the understanding of ourselves as good citizens and as safe. I think the Trump presidency has done something to shake that, to shake its foundations enough to crack just a little bit. And where people, I think, are starting to ask the same questions that we've been asking about the Jewish nation state around nation states in general, in a way that radicals, of course, have been saying for quite a long time. But I think the direness of the situation can't really be ignored and I think that Jewish Currents in many ways is trying to step into that space to say that there is a way to be Jewish, to be yourself, to fight, to play. There is an entire milieu, even in, the, in this particular magazine, a history to lean on, that we're not actually in an unprecedented moment in so many ways. And that the magazine, I mean, we all understand, you know, it's just a magazine, right? It's not, it can't ultimately answer all these questions and it's certainly not going to on its own bring some Moshiach or revolution or something. But what it is for us, I think, is a, is a step, frankly, towards a diasporic 
institution building that I think all of us are, are dying for. I think it's why we listen to your podcast. And we hope basically that this first redesigned issue um, can be the beginning of us playing some role in that. So there, there was a release party for this new, sort of the first issue of the new Jewish Currents. And it was funny to see online all these sort of older Jewish leftists in New York just writing on the internet about how baffled they were about how many young people came out to this yeah. release. Apparently it was packed. Yeah. And to me, it's really interesting to talk about this moment of transition for Jewish Currents because it seems like it's happening at a time, like you said, where this handing of the torch seems to be happening in the Jewish left overall, but it's happening formally for Currents. Yeah. And yeah. I'm interested in the differences between the orientation or the set of priorities that exists with this younger Jewish left generation and maybe the older politics and priorities and, and, and where they differ. Has that come up at all for you <laughs> doing this? Chris? Yeah, I think generational politics are real and they aren't. I mean, the truth is that some of the oldest members on the board still have quite warm feelings about the Communist Party. You know, I mean, they mm. and they're still very radical. I mean, they're like, at least as radical, I think, as people that we may associate our politics with. So there have been generational tensions for sure. But I also just want to complicate the idea that these, you know, they're the boomers, you know, who have a certain politic and that we're trying to pull them to the left. That's true of some of them, but it's not, it's not always the dynamic of the conversations. Right. That being said, you're also right. <laughs> it's, it's also very real, you know, for, especially for the folks that have read the magazine for a really long time. This is a precious object for them. It's one of the few secular Jewish projects that are still going in many different ways, depending on exactly how you define the word secular. So a lot of the tensions have really had to do with just, you know, some fear of these young folks coming in. They don't know us the way that they've known Larry Bush, the outgoing editor. And I think that's really a lot of it. It's just sort of understandable discomfort with the fact that we might, you know, the vulnerability that they're showing by welcoming all these kids they just met, kids, I mean, we're like around 30, but you know, these younger <laughs> folks that they just met, into their house or into their car and not just into their car, but giving them the keys. So what's that been like? I mean, at the party, yes, it was packed. I mean, I don't want to, you know, go on too much about it, but it was really amazing. <laughs> it was really fun. And yeah, there were, there was a contingent of older folks who came and a few of them were dumbstruck in kind of a literal sense. It was, they were like, what? I met this older man there who was a, who's a poet and has written in our magazine in the past. He's like, who, who are all these people? Um, <laughs> and we were pointing around, I was like, it's us, you know, like we've been telling them now for 10 months, you know, the group of us that have been steering the project, we're pretty sure that there are a lot of people who are as hungry for this as we are. And I, I really think like that's actually been the overwhelming reaction because of the nature of the aging readership, you know, before this change, because of the isolation that the left especially the sort of New York-based left has endured because of McCarthyism, even though that was so long ago, there are still ramifications from that today. I think they're just in disbelief that we're real. I mean, they don't, they're not on Twitter, right, seeing various rose emojis, you know, discuss this, this sort of stuff, <laughs> right? And so for them, that's been the main reaction. It's just been this delight, frankly, that, that they're not alone. And it turns out that their perspectives actually live on. So there's been some fear. There's certainly diverse opinions. There are people who are more liberal and more left. Um, but really, like, if I, if, to be honest, to characterize the reaction, it's been excitement. And I, I can kind of understand. I mean, I think they really, I think some of them really believed that they were kind of off on a lifeboat from the radical past and that ultimately things had sort of gone a different way. And certainly, I mean, the 300 whatever number of people who were in that room you know, dancing to Klezmer and stuff, I, I think it demonstrates, you know, quite the opposite, actually, in that politics and the culture have caught up to what they were doing quite some time ago. Mm -hmm. And I think they're pretty happy to see it. And I definitely feel the same way. And that this life raft maybe has seen shore of some kind. Yeah, it was amazing. I mean, I, frankly, I mean, we the turnout was very high. I mean, I guess I guess it's worth mentioning. I mean, it was very, very high. We were very surprised, actually. It was uh, almost 400 people came to this thing that I mean, we just we put it on Facebook and it sent some emails. Um, I, I say that because it, it wasn't like just the older folks that were, you know, surprised by the energy. I would be lying if I said I knew <laughs> that it was going to be this really big. I mean, this whatever this thing that people enjoyed so much. David and I actually had a similar dumbstruck moment. We went to the Jews for Racial and Economic Justice's Purim party. I think it was two years yeah. ago. There was just something so amazing to walk into that synagogue that was filled with hundreds, if not a thousand, or I don't know, there were a ton of people in there. But there's something about seeing 
so many people who broadly identify as Jewish leftists in a space together, just being normal or whatever, not necessarily being normal. <laughs> Hopefully but, not. Yeah, I don't but, know about normal. But. Yeah, yeah, no, sorry, that's definitely not the case. But like just being was being. was a really affirming thing. So I can only imagine what it would be like to be 80 years old, ex-communist party, haven't really come to a big Jewish event in a while, and to walk into a room of... I think that's exactly right. I mean, frankly, the Purim party is an enormous inspiration to all of us. Uh, the Purim party, for instance, for anybody who's in New York, is this thing Jews for Racial and Economic Justice do, right, every Purim. And, it, and it's exactly as you described. It's, it's, it's this banger. It's this huge party that's joyous and super, super Jewish in all these different ways. And I think that that both the party aspect and also all of Jay Frege's other work are actually like a huge inspiration uh, to many of us who are trying to build some of these things. Um, it posits maybe there's a way, you know, maybe, maybe, this, maybe this really is possible, um, you know, to, to sort of carve uh, a real meaningful, exciting, powerful, angry, agitational, uh, et cetera, Jewish life here. You know, maybe that's a real thing we can have. Yeah, that, that for us, I think those fragments of a kind of diasporism um, all over the place. That's what really gives us hope. We just want to be a part of that. <laughs> That's really what it's about. Mm. So in the new issue, sort of inaugurating the, you know, the new version of Jewish Currents, you had a piece where you talked a bit about the Jewish community's support for Israel, uh, representing a sort of, you, you described it as a thereness, you know, focusing on things over there. And you contrasted that with a focus on doikite or hereness, an allusion to the Bund and, and their politics. Um, of anti-Zionist politics. And that was really interesting to read in Jewish Currents because Jewish Currents, you know, as a magazine, did support Israel in 67. And mm, most, of their, right. most of their criticism of, of Israel has usually fallen along sort of liberal or left Zionist lines. And to me, this seemed like a, like a shift. And, and I'm wondering if you're seeing it that way too. This may be... I'm tempted to bring up the generational politics because I think to some extent this might be one of the issues where generally speaking the younger folks who have, who have come into some ownership of the project are by and large uh, quite angry. There has certainly been an Obama-like optimism about the Israeli project, optimism on the possibility of talking our way out of this, or that we were going to get to some resolution. And look, full disclosure, I, I, I worked for J Street or for the J Street U, the student organizing arm. So I know what this feels like. You know, it was not my first inclination after seeing the occupation when I was, I was 19, 18 or 19, when I first saw the wall, the other side of the wall, not the clean side, the side that's covered in graffiti from people who are trapped inside of it. It wasn't my first inclination to necessarily swing to my position now, right? But I think that, yes, it's true that the younger people who have come in and come into leadership in the magazine are, are pushing it. But if you came to one of our board meetings and met several of the older board members, you would be quite surprised. You know, I don't want to get, I don't want to short them if and when they, they hear this interview. They, they've, they've been on this page for quite some time. So there is debate, but it's reflecting the overall change that is giving life to so many different left Israel-Palestine organizations. We are part of those communities. So yes, you're seeing that in our pages. For what it's worth, I would really like to meet any of those older folks who are angry as well and were anti-Zionists <laughs> before we were born. Um, so <laughs> oh, come down. <laughs> they honestly might email you. I've... <laughs> the, other, the other tension that I'm sometimes seeing between these different generations of the Jewish left is around secularism. We were talking with Ben mm. uh, from Protocols uh, about that project. And he was talking about how with that project, they, they were hesitant to even call it a leftist project because they thought, they thought it would potentially alienate a lot of people who've had negative experiences in secular leftist spaces as Jews. Mm. And Jewish Currents has, is probably one of the most explicitly secular publications. Like I, if you open the magazine, they'll say it's published by the Association for the Promotion of Jewish Secularism. You, <laughs> you know, got us. The, you know, like Larry Bush had the uh, religion and skepticism column. There used to be mm -hmm. a regular segment about secular Jewish heritage. And, and I love this stuff. Like this is definitely the tradition that I feel connected mm -hmm. to. Um, but I'm curious how this plays with this younger generation of leftist Jews, because I don't really see a lot of secular language or, uh, or an interest in secularism among this new generation so far. This is a great question and a really interesting dynamic in, in the magazine. So I guess maybe I'll start 
I, I am secular. I'm a secular Jew. So I'm saying that because I think it's true of most of the folks, certainly the millennials that have come on and are taking some leadership in the magazine. Most of us, you would describe exactly that way. That's not true of everybody. We have certainly more religious lefties who are taking the same amount of leadership and doing a lot of writing and also translating um, in our ranks. So it's true also that we are expanding our tent to some extent to include perspectives that maybe wouldn't necessarily be called secular. So I, I think what's happening here is that the secular discourse that was so powerful, the secular community that was very powerful and very active and actively and publicly secular, I think in many ways won. Secularity is the dominant form for most of us progressive Jews, is the dominant experience of Judaism. It's so predominant and hegemonic that you, many of us grew up without even knowing the word, including myself. It was uh, invisible to me the fact that this was what it was. This is just Judaism. So I think in many ways, just the fact that we're publishing definitively Jewish work that does not require a belief in a deity or observance of halakha, that to me is the practice and ritual of secularism, you know, is the, is the creation of these works. Um, and I think if you go on our site, like you click around, the vast majority of it has no relationship to religion in, in most ways. It instead wrestles with all the classic questions of Jewish identity versus Jewish power and action and our future. And if those aren't, if examining those questions isn't the machlokas, you know, of, of Jewish secular uh, debate, then I, then I don't know what it is because that's certainly my Judaism in most ways. Um, so this is an expression of, a secular platform that is strong enough to withstand multiple perspectives, certainly on this question. You know, the fact that somebody wears a kippah or something, you know, doesn't break our relationship. doesn't mean I think most of us agree necessarily that the reason to follow halakha is Hashem, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, like the sort of religious way of thinking. At the same time, many of us are very curious about that. I mean, my own partner studied Talmud for over a year, you know, and I'm curious about those things. So, I think in many ways the line is blurring just a little bit, mostly because of the great success of the secular program. And I think that curiosity, a flirtation a bit with mysticism and religion, we're, we're curious. And I think we're exploring in a lot of ways and doing so from our, generally speaking, very secular selves. But if you're not secular, I, especially if you're progressive or left, you know, you're going to find enough in there that's worth sticking around. Or that's how it's been already. There may come some breaking point or some moment of tension. But so far, mm. it hasn't really been the, the locus of uh, pushback or pushing. That's fascinating. I've, I've never heard anyone talk about the ways in which secular Judaism has won in certain aspects of the Jewish community. Um, Do I you buy it? Um, I think it makes I, sense. I think that makes sense in America. Yeah. Um, mm. Where there's a huge proportion of American Jews who are disproportionately liberal in their politics, tend mm -hmm. toward the secular, if are not explicitly secular. But in Canada, it's a very different story. Uh, it's much more institutionalized. It's much more religious, and it's much more mm. right wing. It, it, it's it's not as as yeah. popular. It's not as it's not dominant yeah. in the same way. And so I think it's it might be difficult for that to make sense in our context in the same way. But I understand how it makes sense for the U.S. context. For America, yeah. <laughs> I also kind of, it's, it's hard for me to think about the, because we're talking about like sort of the editorial line of the magazine. And it's often difficult for me to think about it. I think it's because of the time that I discovered Jewish Currents was also around the same time that I discovered almost like a, like a sibling publication in Canada. It used to be called Canadian Jewish Outlook and eventually mm -hmm. it was just called Outlook. It, it folded, I think, a year or two ago. And... On a lot of these issues, it was very similar in its editorial line, like around secularism. It was a little more anti-Zionist, uh, at least under the last editor. But I think that they, another area where it shared a focus, or shared an outlook, so to speak, was um, <laughs> you know after splitting with the Communist Party in the 50s, that it more or less took a sort of social democrat line uh, mm. as, as an editorial policy. And, and so I'm curious if, if you feel like that's something that's up for debate at this point or, or, or malleable going forward, uh, how the paper approaches questions of capitalism. That's a good question. Well, a quick note on Outlook. When Outlook folded, they became Jewish Currents subscribers, actually. Uh, um, yeah, I think, there, I think there were 550. That might be a totally wrong number. Cool. Um, point being, yes, they're phenomenally similar, especially today. <laughs> they're exceedingly similar. And uh, questions of capitalism. Is it malleable? I mean, malleable to me, maybe malleable is a good word because malleable implies that you're like bending or shaping something. Certainly among the folks coming into leadership, 
there's not debate whether this is the optimal system that humans should live under. Uh, it's pretty clear that the answer is no. <laughs> um, do we have a party line? I think that's maybe the toughest question. What we like to say, we're not a, we're not a magazine of a party, we're a magazine of a community. So our, that is reflected in our editorial line. So we don't have a social democratic editorial line, but I think you could say our editorial attitude, our stance, is informed by much of the same anger and many of the same politics as social democrats and going left. So whatever you want to call that, that that's what it is. So it's actually a hard question to answer because um, I think part of what you're reading when you read the magazine is the community as a whole trying to figure out what exactly those things should be. And that's both exciting and can totally be scattershot. And so I think that's part of the excitement, frankly, of what we're trying to do. So how can folks get a subscription? How can folks read the current issue? How can folks read the archived issue? Um, so to get a subscription, go to jewishcurrents.org and you can click subscribe. It'll be brought down to a menu where you can choose domestic if you're in the U.S., uh, international if you're elsewhere. Uh, and then also we are offering lifetime subscriptions, which is a great way, uh, you know, potentially if you want to really dig down and, and support the project, it, it makes it also makes a really a great gift. Uh, um, but uh, yes, for Canadian listeners, it is indeed an international subscription. We are working to find a way to reduce these postal costs. Uh, but for right now, that is true. But if you can't, if you don't have the means uh, to uh, to get a subscription, no problem. We publish everything that we create on the website. It's either going to be on JewishCurrents.org. If you're looking for something older, uh, either in older issues or in its original format on our previous uh, WordPress, where we've preserved comments. There are a lot of really amazing, actually, bits of writing inside the comment section. Um, I know that sounds crazy for anyone who's ever been to a comment section, but it's really true. Um, all you have to do is go to jewishcurrents.org, click archive, and then you'll you'll see instructions there for how to find these old issues. Um, and also, yeah, I, I, one thing I want to say to everyone listening, we're also looking for contributors, uh, and we're look and I would just guide people to our about page. Um, we are trying to uh, change the makeup uh, of this magazine and bring on all the voices that make up the Jewish community uh, and especially the left, powerful, growing Jewish community. So if you're a writer or a creator of some kind, we pay for contributions. So I, I would really, really, really love to to hear from anyone who would like to contribute. That would really be the most amazing thing. So you can, I mean, you can email me. I mean, I'll just give out my email. It's jacob at jewishcurrents.org. Yeah. And thanks so much. I really feel uh, honored actually to have been on the show. Oh, I mean, I, I, I'm super excited about everything going on at Jewish Currents. And thanks for taking the time to chat with us about it. Thank you. In the 1910s, a Yiddish anarchist newspaper titled the Friar Arbiter Stimme had a subscription base of more than 20,000. It's time for Shkoyach. Shkoyach! Shkoyach. Welcome back to Shkoyach. Thank you so much. It's been a while. Uh, Sam. Yes, David. In what direction would you like to award your Shkoyach uh, on this episode? I'm very excited to give a Shkoyach to a group of people who have been fighting against something that is meritus of an anti-shkoyach. That is meritus? I think I made that word up, but <laughs> but deserves an anti-shkoyach. Okay, and what are they fighting? So the thing in question is a musical performance called Slav or Slave. No, it's Slave. It's spelled S-L-A-V, but there's a, there's a squiggly line over the A. So anyways, the point of this story is two prominent Quebec theater and musical characters. Uh, the director is Robert Lepage, who has a checkered history, and Betty Bonifaci, who's the performer, they decided to put together a performance that included slave songs performed primarily by a white cast. So can you tell me more about the guy's checkered past? I can actually tell you about his checkered future because in, <laughs> in all of this hoopla, it has come out that he is currently working on a play uh, with indigenous themes is how it's been described. Oh, no. And there are also no indigenous people implicated in that process as well. I read somewhere that some some performance that he organized, I think at the same festival years ago, the Globe and Mail described as anti-Semitic because of its depiction of Jews. Once again, not surprising from this particular character. I mean, so ultimately, a bunch of folks in Montreal 
organized against this performance. Uh, it got very mediatized. There's a collective formed called the Slave Resistance Collective. Again, it's spelled S-L-A-V. There's some prominent folks, people like Mary Lou Craft, Elena Studley, and Ricardo Lamour. And we're going to put a lot of links in the show notes to the kind of writings that people did opposing it. And ultimately, the Montreal Jazz Festival canceled the show. There's a ton of controversy about why they canceled the show. And there's been a laundry list of horrendous op-eds by many prominent white Quebecers arguing that it's some kind of censorship of free speech. But I want to focus on the resistance against this performance and the fact that this collective, which is made up of a lot of activists and artists from the city, using this momentum to challenge and confront the kind of white hegemony of a lot of Quebec art. And yeah, so I just want to give a giant square to them. And we're going to put a bunch of links in the show notes. You can read more about it. But yeah, massive, massive square. Yeah, and I mean, the people who were organizing this thing originally, who had made all the music, my understanding is like at least one of them were responsible for some of the music in the film The Triplets of Belleville. Huh. Like they're pretty prominent, well-known Quebec music people. Oh, yes, 100%. This is a very common debate that happens in the Quebec media um, and in, in Quebec art scenes. It feels like it happens every year or two where there's some incident. I mean, we still have a bunch of blackface incidents in the recent past. It's a serious problem. So for folks in Quebec, please support people in your neighborhoods and in your communities who are doing this kind of work, because this is fucking important. Yeah, so for this victory. And fuck the people who are putting on this play, who are supporting this play, and who are continuing to try to have this play be performed somewhere else, because it's now become a beacon of free speech, blah, blah, blah here. Um, David, I'm ranting a little bit, so I'm going to pass the buck back to you. Yeah, this isn't a Sam Sports segment. <laughs> That's the only place where I can rant? <laughs> we have that reserved. So, so David, is your square positive? Is it negative? Um, is it a mix of the two? Um, so my square today uh, is just a positive, straightforward square to members of an organization called Jews Say No. A.K.A. JSN. I mean, I don't think they abbreviate it that way, but sure. And uh, (laughs) members of the group in May during the 70th anniversary of the Nakba, they created this website that was forward.com, but with an extra D. Um, For those who aren't familiar, the Jewish Daily Forward, which has recently just been abbreviated to the Forward, one of the main Jewish newspapers, it's been around since 1897. It's a pretty liberal paper, um, tends to be fairly Zionist. Um, If you're listening to the show and you haven't heard of the Forward, Send me an email, uh, trafepodcast at gmail.com. I will also give you a reward because I do not believe that anyone who's listening to this show <laughs> has not heard of the forward. Um, but thank you for doing that. Yeah. So these people created essentially a satirical website that looked like the forward and it was called Moving Forward. And all the articles were about not just the Nakba, but about uh, Jewish organizational complicity in the Nakba via the Jewish National Fund. Yeah, I heard about this. It was a couple months ago, right? Yeah, so they made this in May during the anniversary. But since then, I'm not sure when, the site has been redirected to ongoingnakba.com, and they redesigned the site to now be Ongoing Nakba. Oh. I'm not sure if that was because the forward was pressuring them uh, with any sort of legal action or whether it was just a more sustainable media project this way. And so, David, is it clear who's involved in JSN? Like, what kind of an organization it is? Yeah, so people, I don't know if you're familiar with Donna Neville, who has been a part of many Jewish left organizations over the years, but uh, the four editors listed on Moving Forward are are Donna Neville, Nina Felshin, Alan Levine, and and Jane Hirschman. So, shkoyach to all those folks. Yes, I would like to send my shkoyach to the four of you as well, although this is David's shkoyach section. So, So, David, the new website has a more clear explanation of what it is, but can you talk about some of the ideas behind what Moving Forward was? I mean, some of the members have talked about calling for Jewish publications to, you know, move forward, so to speak, by centering the Nakba in their analysis and their reporting, and to think about how Jewish people and Jewish organizations can be a part of the movement calling for justice. And I assume we're going to put this in the show notes? Yeah, we'll have a link to the website in the show notes. It's a great resource. It curates some articles. Some of them are a bit older that give more of a context for the Nakba. It also profiles some organizations that are doing work around the Nakba, both in Palestine and and abroad. Um, So yeah, there'll definitely be a link for it. And David, I feel like spoof newspapers are kind of up your wheelhouse. Oh, 100%. Uh, Full disclosure, there was a period of time where the crew of Jewish leftists that we hang out with, we tried to create our own satirical newspaper. Turns Uh, out that making fake newspaper paper is very hard. Yeah, (laughs) we had a a pitch meetings, we had a whiteboard with all the fake articles. 
Uh, a lot of them were pretty funny. They were. Yeah, RIP that project. Mm-hmm. Or who knows, maybe they'll rise again one day. <laughs> um, but in the, in, in the interim, Shkoyak to Moving Forward, who did it much better <laughs> and uh, on, a, on a level that we were unable to. So that was your episode of Trey for this month. Thank you so much for tuning in. Thank you to Jacob and Ben. Um, David, thank you for being you. Oh, thanks for being you, Sam. <laughs> and I have a little bit of an ask to kind of close out this show. I would like to know if anyone has any ideas about how to make a translated interview sound good in this format. Um, David and I have been talking about bringing more content of leftist Jews from the Maghreb and from France into the show. The issue is that a lot of the books and a lot of the materials are in French and folks we might talk to will be francophone and and we could do the initial interview, but figuring out a way to make it listenable on radio is something that I don't really have an idea of how to do. So if you're in audio or have friends who are in audio and and have any ideas or suggestions, please send us an email, trafepodcast at gmail.com. We're kind of brainstorming right now, but um, this is a really important part of what I think the show should be about and we want to find a way to make that happen. For those of you who continue to feel that listening to the show in the context of the rise of global fascism is something that seems important to you, you can give us a positive rating on iTunes, which I think is now called Apple Podcasts. Huh. If it seems to you like this podcast is now a trivial distraction from the uh, increasingly urgent political realities surrounding you, uh, give us uh, you know four out of five stars. I would suggest that everyone give us a five, even if you don't like us. You can also you can write something negative in the text, but give us the five stars. But if you are a fan of the show, if you listen to the show, if you have things that you want to share with listeners, please send us to trafepodcast at gmail.com a voice memo. You can record on your phone, on a computer. Just record anything you want to share. That's about a minute or two. Start with your name and where you're calling from, and we'll uh, air it in an upcoming episode. Trafe Podcast is... Uh, Sam Beck and David Zedman. A huge thanks to... CKT. Where we record this podcast under the shadow of the giant cross of secularism on occupied Ganyakahaga territory. A huge thanks to Kira Page, our social media consultant, to Cadence O'Neill, who designed TrafePodcast.com, to So Called and Sax Syndrome for the music you heard in the episode, and of course to Ariana Katz, the Trafe staff rabbi. Who is starting a Justice Stiebel in Baltimore, and go check that out. We'll put that in the show notes as well. You can follow us on all the social medias at TrafePodcast, T R E Y F. And you can send comments, suggestions, or the more popular hate mail to trafepodcast at gmail.com. More episodes soon. Sam? Wow, David, it smells terrible in here. <laughs> okay, we're in, where, we're in a, where are you? It's a it's community radio uh, station in Montreal. It's it was connected to McGill at some point, but it isn't like anymore. Twenty five years ago, and um, it's an old kind of like three story building, and, and we're in the basement. And this is the second studio, <laughs> but it has no uses. windows and no ventilation, and, and it's not soundproofed. <laughs> somehow it's not soundproof, which is the dumbest thing of. All the things I just listed. And the only light is attached to a fan, so you have to turn it off, so we're in complete darkness except for the computer screen. Yeah. Uh, it's a, <laughs> is this how every episode is constructed? Yes. We used to have a lamp. Someone took the lamp last month. <laughs>